scary as it comes, that you would enable him to be strong of voice and strong of soul to be able to proclaim these wonderful truths to us. That Father, would deep, dig deep within our hearts, take roots and grow, that we might live to glorify you with our very breath. In this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning to you. If you will be turning in your Bibles to Luke, I'm sorry, not to Luke, but to John chapter 6. While you're turning in your Bibles, I want to just express once again to Grace Church here my thanksgiving for hosting the conference this weekend. On behalf of the navigators, I know that it's the KU navigators that have done the work and put on the conference, but as a fellow staff member, I want to express thanks, Bill, to, to the church here for your hospitality in hosting the conference and for the fact that uh, you invite me back year after year. Uh, most of you do not know this, but I do get the tapes of Bill's sermons uh, every, whenever they send them, every couple of weeks. And um, as I listen to them, I think, why would he invite me? to fill his pulpit, and so it is indeed a privilege and an honor. Also, I should tell you that um, United Airlines has moved the flight from Kansas City to Denver up in the afternoon, so I will not be at the door to greet you as you go out this morning, as is the custom, but uh, we will have to scoot as soon as the service is over in order to get back and finish packing and get up to the airport in time for that flight. So, um, I greet you now uh, and wish it were possible to shake hands with more of you afterwards. John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. What are we going to do? This is a question that we often ask when we find ourselves in a situation for what 
for which we have no answer. And Jesus' question to Philip, phrased in terms, where are we going to buy bread that these may eat, is a specific application, you might say, or a specific presentation of that more general question, what are we going to do? Jesus is facing the disciples with a predicament for which they have no remedy. If we could have been uh, Philip, we would have said, what are we going to do? There are all these people. And in our own lives, we frequently encounter situations which force us to ask the question in some form or another, what are we going to do? For example, three months after you move into uh, a new house with a hefty mortgage payment, you lose your job. And so you come home and you look at your spouse and you say, what are we going to do? Are we going to make our mortgage payment? Jane and I have a friend who at the age of 31 lost his wife to cancer, leaving him with two small children, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And those of us who knew him were asking, what is he going to do? How is he going to care for these children? Now, the situation that you encounter from time to time may not be as traumatic as losing one's wife with, and leaving you with two small children, or even uh, losing your job with a hefty mortgage payment. It can be what I call the trivial to the traumatic. And so many of life's circumstances, well, all of life's adverse circumstances fit someplace on that continuum. Some of them are just trivial, and in the course of a lifetime, we hardly remember them. Some of them are traumatic and very life-changing, change the whole direction or course of our lives. And so many times in between, at various stages of difficulty, we find these situations that God has put us into that force us to ask the question, what are we going to do? I'm sure that every one of you sitting here this morning can supply examples from your own life when you have been forced to ask the question in one phrase or another, in one way or another. You may not have used those exact words, but the intent of what you were saying was the question, what are we going to do? So we know that God often puts us or allows us to get into those situations where we do not know what to do. And he does this, of course, to force us to look to him. And when we find ourselves in these situations, this historical account from the life of Jesus of the feeding of the 5,000 can help us. And when I say it's a historical account, I want to remind us that this actually happened. This was a real event from time and space. These 5,000 men plus women and children were actually fed by Jesus through these uh, small pieces of bread and the two fish. And as we look at this story today, there are some helpful lessons that you and I can learn. First of all, I want us to see the purpose of Jesus in asking the question. You notice here in verse 6, when Jesus said in verse 5, where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. The word here, test, can mean either test in the sense of examine, as in giving a test at school, or it can be used in the sense of enticing one to sin. For example, Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves or 
test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. By the contrast, James in James 1, verses 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted, neither tempt ye anyone. But we all are tempted when by our own evil desires we are drawn away and enticed in the wilderness when after his baptism the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. The word would be used in both senses. That is to say, God allowed Satan to entice Jesus, to try to induce him to sin in order to test him. And of course, the reality is that Jesus gloriously passed the test a test uh, similar to the one that Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, except Jesus' test was much more severe than the test of Adam. So Jesus passed the test, Adam failed the test, but in both cases they were enticed to sin. And in our story here, in this account of the feeding of the 5,000, you might say it was midterm exam time. The reason I say that is because This uh, miracle is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And as you read in the other Gospels and go back into before what happened before that, you find, for example, that Jesus had healed many people. He had healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law specifically, but a number of people had been healed. He had cast out demons. He had raised the dead. He had caused Peter to catch that large draft of fish. He had turned water into wine. And by now, the disciples should have been asking themselves the question, is there anything that Jesus can't do? But instead, Jesus gives them a test to see how they would answer. Jesus gives them this midterm exam. Where are we going to buy bread to feed these people? Now, though he addresses the question to Philip, I think that we can reasonably infer that he had in mind the entire group of disciples. We know, for example, that um, uh, Philip, uh, not Philip, but Simon, uh, uh, sorry, yes, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, uh, spoke up about the five barley cakes and the two fish. So we know that at least two of them were there, and we can, I think, reasonably assume that all the disciples were sort of standing around Jesus, and Jesus looks at this crowd, and he says, where are we going to buy bread that uh, these people may eat? He doesn't say, do you think that I can feed these people? If he had put the question like that, there's a possibility that the disciples would say, well, yeah, when you put it like that, maybe so. But he puts the ball in their court, so to speak. He forces them into the situation. He makes the predicament their predicament. Where are we going to buy bread that these people may eat. And so he puts the ball in their court to see whether or not they would pass the test. Now in an academic setting, the primary purpose of a test is to assign a grade. That is to determine the student's comprehension of the material that is the subject of the test in order to assign a grade. Oftentimes, though, the professor wants to know, or the lecturer, whoever the teacher, wants to know how well they are doing. I I know some years ago I was teaching annually in a little Bible school up in Montana, and uh, I would teach for a week, and uh, I would test periodically. In fact, uh, I would test, 
classes started on Monday, and on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I would give a test of the prior day's work. And the first year, it was terrible. And so uh, I thought, well, I'm going to take care of this. So I went through my notes, and every time I would come to a place in my notes that I was going to have a test question on, I wrote out in the margin, test question. So that when I came to that point, I would be sure to belabor the point, to make sure that the students got the idea. It didn't help. And uh, so I concluded that I wasn't connecting very well with those students. So in a sense, those tests were for me to show me how effective or ineffective I was as a lecturer. But primarily, we know that it's to test the students. But it would be an opportunity also for the students to test themselves, for the disciples to uh, assess their own progress in faith. And so the purpose of Jesus asking this question was to test the disciples and allow them to see how they were doing in what we might call the school of faith. And what we need to learn from this is that when God puts us into one of those situations where we are prone to ask, what are we going to do? He has basically two purposes. First of all, he wants to test our faith to see how we're going to respond to that. And then through bringing us through that situation, he wants to grow our faith so that our faith will increase. Uh, but then the next time, he raises the bar a little bit more and perhaps makes the test a little bit more challenging because he always wants us to keep growing in our faith. And so we see that Jesus' purpose was to test the disciples. And then we see the poverty of their response, the poverty of human response. Their response is so typical of us. We shouldn't look at the disciples and say, well, you know, when are they finally going to get the message? Because the fact is that in terms of faith, we are usually about as dense as they were at that time. But Philip uh, responds by, you know, counting the shekels, so to speak, which they don't have. But Philip begins to, to calculate how can we humanly respond to this situation. And he says 200 denarii would not be sufficient to buy enough bread for these people. Now, in order for us to, to understand what Philip is saying, we need to recall that a denarius was the uh, accepted wage of a working man in that day, a day's wage. You got paid, you worked a day, and you got paid a denarius. And so 200 denarii would be 200 working days of wages, or about two-thirds of a year. And if we would bring that into our contemporary culture, and let's just say, to be very conservative, that the wage of a working man would be $30,000 in a year. Then two-thirds of that would be $20,000. And this is what Philip is saying. He says $20,000 would not buy enough bread. Look at these, look at these people. Look at this huge crowd. Lord, $20,000 would not buy enough bread for these people. So in a sense, Philip just throws up his hands and he says, Lord, there's no way that we can handle this situation. There's no way that we can respond to it. And then Andrew pipes up and his response is really laughable because he says, well, there is a boy here who has five barley cakes and two little fish. But what are they among so many? I mean, he, he's getting pretty desperate at this point. And, uh, but you see that both of them are still looking 
at the human possibilities. They were looking entirely at their human resources. And again, the lesson for us today is to see that this is the way that we typically tend to react to one of these what are we going to do situations. We try to calculate. We try to figure out a solution that doesn't involve God. You know, sometimes we joke about when everything else fails, try prayer. Well, that's often, you know, that's really not a joking thing because so oftentimes that's the way we approach life. We, we are faced with one of these dilemmas, one of these predicaments, one of these what are we going to do situations and instinctively we try to reason through it and come up with a solution that is humanly possible, a solution that we can make happen. I don't think it's that we don't want to involve God. It's simply that our default setting is not to involve God. We instinctively look to ourselves and try to come up with something out of our own human resources whereby we can respond to the situation. And if we can't think of anything, then we kind of throw up our hands and say, what are we going to do? If your situation is one that you can resolve with your own resources, it is not a test of your faith. And also, it would not be an occasion for increasing or growing your faith. It is only when the situation is beyond your resources that we begin to see God at work. There are many situations that are quite normal or that are resolved in a, in a very ordinary fashion. Several years ago, we had two back-to-back hailstorms that uh, so severely damaged our roof that the roofing um, estimator said that we needed a completely new roof. We live in Hale Alley out there. I know you live in Tornado Alley. We live in Hale Alley, and we, in the summertime, we frequently get these hailstorms, and uh, we had two back-to-back ones, and uh, our roof was kind of, you know, getting so-so anyway, and uh, those two hailstorms sort of finished the job. And so the roofing estimator said, yes, you do need an entirely new roof, and it will cost $17,000. Now, at first blush, that's one of these what-are-we-going-to-do situations. But he said, call your insurance company and uh, ask them to send out uh, an appraiser, and I will meet him uh, when he comes, and we'll go over it together. And so uh, I called, the appraiser came out, and uh, he and the estimator went over the roof, and, and the appraiser agreed that we needed a complete new roof. And so the insurance company paid for the entire replacement apart from the deductible, which was manageable. So that was not, what, that was not one of those what-are-we-going-to-do situations. Even though it was a significant amount of money, there was a, a human possibility, a human response to that situation. And my point is here that sometimes it's a big deal, but there is a human possibility. Sometimes it's a small deal, and there is no human possibility. I can't tell you how many times I've had to pray and ask God to help me find some important papers, like notes for a message or something like that. Or, or just recently, uh, I had worked for over an hour trying to reconcile our checkbook to the, to the bank statement, and... Um, it was one of these situations where the bank said we had so many dollars and 92 cents, and my checkbook said we had so many dollars and 92 cents. 
So the 92 cents agreed, but the so many dollars did not agree. Well, when it's like that, you figure this is probably some one thing that's causing the problem. And I had looked for an hour to try to find this, and I couldn't find it. Jane came home, and as she was coming in, I said, Honey, I've been working for an hour trying to reconcile this checkbook. Would you pray that the Lord will help me to find? Uh, so she prayed, and she had no sooner uh, stopped praying than she said, Try so-and-so. And so I tried so-and-so, and sure enough, that was the problem. And, you know, in about one minute after she prayed, why well, the problem was resolved. And, and I give that to you to say, you know, in the course of a lifetime, that is indeed a trivial thing. But God is always bringing us into these. And my own experience is that God has a lot of these trivial things in order to cause me to realize that I am dependent upon him. I mean, after all, I was the treasurer of the navigators for 10 years. I can balance a checkbook, see. But uh, God brings me into the situation where uh, I, should, I should say that other people balance the navigator's checkbook, not me. But at least I'm familiar with finances. But uh, God keeps bringing me into these situations where I realize that I'm dependent upon him, whether it's the small things in life, whether it's the major things in life. God wants us to learn that we are dependent upon him. God is not simply trying to grow our faith. And the way that he does this is by giving us a test to realize how much we need to learn, how much we need to rely upon him. And so God continually tests us in different areas. Sometimes I want to relate to you. And, you know, you're, you're thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to resolve this situation? Sometimes it's spiritual condition of loved ones. Maybe... You have a child that is not walking with God, is turned away from the Lord, personal sins in our lives. But most of us, if we're growing from time to time, are going to find ourselves in the situation asking, what are we going to do? So we see the purpose of Jesus asking the question, illustrative of our, the poverty of our own response for much of the time, and then we see the power of Jesus in resolving the dilemma. Jesus just flat out performed a miracle. The Bible doesn't tell us what this miracle looked like, and there's no point in speculating. And I would have to say, of all of the miracles that Jesus performed, this is the one which I tend to scratch my head the most and say, how did he do this? You know, I mean, Jesus can turn water into wine, and here's the water, and Jesus says, become wine. And just like that, it happened. And here's a dead young man lying here, and Jesus says, Arise, and he arises. But to take five little barley cakes, and they're smaller than the size of my hand, and two fish, and you know, you, you try to visualize crumbling this up and so forth, and you, you just say, I don't know. And so let's not try to speculate, but the important thing is that he did it. He used his power to resolve an impossible dilemma. So you may ask, will God work a miracle in my situation? Probably not. Because Jesus performed these miracles as signs to authenticate his divinity. Notice in verse 14 when the people saw the sign that he had done. And later on at the end of the Gospel of John, John himself says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The signs were to authenticate the deity of Jesus and the fact that he was indeed the Son of God who came to die. So it's not likely that God is going to perform a miracle to resolve your what-am-I-going-to-do situation. Now I understand, and I've been told, and I have no reason to doubt, that in places in the world today where the gospel is just penetrating into spiritual darkness, into Satan's kingdom, you might say, that uh, there are indeed miracles performed. And whether or not that's true or not, that may possibly be true. I have no reason to doubt that. But I don't see miracles being done, at least in the context of where we live and operate day after day. And that's why I say in answer to your question, Will God work a miracle for me? Probably not. But God has another way of resolving your dilemma, and that's what we call his providence. Now, those of you who were here for the conference yesterday morning will remember that I talked a little bit about providence, but this morning I want to distinguish between a miracle and a providence. A miracle is when Jesus operated outside of the laws which he established and which he sustained. The law of gravity, for example, is we will call that a natural law. That's something which God put into operation at the beginning of the creation of this earth, and God sustains that moment by moment. The laws of nature do not operate independently of God's moment by moment sustaining power. It's not as if God set all of this in motion and then just sort of backed off to watch it operate. But the scripture says that in him all things hold together. He sustains all things. And so at this very moment, Jesus is sustaining the law of gravity. And all of the natural laws. Jesus is sustaining the laws, the, the chemical laws, whereby grapes will eventually become wine. And these kinds of things. So Jesus is sustaining all of the natural laws and all of the natural processes which he established in the beginning, and obviously, having established them and sustaining them, he is perfectly free to operate outside of them. He can do anything he wants in this physical realm. And he did that with these miracles. By contrast, his providence is working in accordance with his laws. Providence is working using... Uh, the laws of nature, using the normal actions of people and creatures and these kinds of things. Providence is God's directing and orchestrating all of the events of history to, to accomplish his purposes. Now, we can look at that on a macro scale and say God is orchestrating every event that is occurring at this precise moment throughout his universe. But then we, what we need to do is to bring that down to ourselves because we're the ones who are asking, what are we going to do? And God is orchestrating uh, actions of people in various circumstances to respond to your dilemma, to your problem. We find the difference between uh, miracles and providence is stated in one passage. And uh, Bill actually referred to a red portion of this passage this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is reviewing for the people their history, their immediate past history of 40 years of wandering in the desert, 
And then he's preparing them to cross the River Jordan and to enter the Promised Land. And so he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And we, if, if you're familiar with that account, you know that out in the desert that God rained the manna down every night. And so in the morning when the, the Hebrew people would get up, they would go out and this manna would be on the ground and they would gather it up and make it into cakes and things. And that was their food for 40 years. And you remember that uh, the first day that that happened, some of the people were concerned that there might not be any tomorrow. God has worked a miracle today, but we're not sure about tomorrow. So while we're at it, we're going to get enough for tomorrow. And you remember that that which they laid up for the next day uh, began to spoil, become rotten and stunk. And God said, you know, I told you to just get enough for the day. And then, of course, on the day before the Sabbath, they were together two days, and that did not stink. And so we see that God was working this miracle. He not only was, was raining this food down from the sky, you know, we look up and we think, well, where did this come from? We try to figure out, well, you know, what natural laws did God use to provide this miracle? And the answer is none. He simply spoke and it was done. Because it says here that, that you might know that man does not live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the, the mouth of the Lord there, or the word, is not the word of Scripture, but the word of God's command. And God, just when he said, let there be light, and there was light, back in Genesis chapter 1, in a similar fashion, he says, let there be man, and it was there. And let it stink if you leave it for the next day. Or let it not stink if it's the day before the Sabbath. God was working a miracle. God was, was working directly outside of the laws which he had created. However, if we come into verses 17 and 18, having just reminded the people of uh, the miracle that God had, had uh, worked, well, let's begin with 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end, Beware lest you say in your heart, now that you go into the land where you're going to farm and you're going to raise cattle and all of these things. In other words, they are going to work for their food. And God has promised that he's going to bless them. He's going to cause their cows to calve. He's going to give them fruitful, abundant harvest. And Moses is saying, when this happens, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. In other words, Moses is saying to them, your ability to go out and raise a crop and your ability to raise your livestock and your sheep and so forth is just as much God-given as was the raining of manna from on high. Now, in providence, God involves us. Or he involves other people. But God is orchestrating all of these events. We know from the further history of the, of the nation of Israel 
that there were times when God withheld the rain and their cows didn't have and all of these things because God was judging the people. And so God, from moment to moment, exercises absolute control over every event in his universe. He exercises control over the weather and over the automobile traffic on the interstate and these things. There is not a single activity in his universe that is not under the sovereign control of God. And God orchestrates these events to accomplish his purposes and also to care for you and me. For example, just a little trivial illustration of balancing the checkbook. No, the reason that Jane came up with that immediate answer was because Jane and I were at a family camp up in Oregon, a church that is one of our supporting churches, and they from time to time invite us up to participate in their family camp. And uh, so they, they go just about an hour outside of the city of Fort Philly. And uh, on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening, my ventilation tube on the left side just stopped up completely. And uh, I'm already deaf in this ear, so when that eustachian tube stopped up, that meant that I basically couldn't hear. Uh, I was sitting six feet away from the piano, and I could not hear the piano being played. Uh, Jane would have to get right in my ear, and sort of I, I could still talk, and I could hear myself. You know, internally I could hear what I was saying, and so I was able to speak that night. But it was not a very comfortable experience. There were a couple of physicians uh, in the in the church there at the camp, and so one of them said, uh, I want you to come into my office tomorrow afternoon and we'll take a look at it. And so the next afternoon, one of the ladies uh, there from the church drove me into Dr. Lockwood's office. And as we drove up to the office building where their practice is, she said, I'm going to let you out in front here and you go in and turn to your left in their office, or turn to your right, and their office is right there. I'll park the car and come in. And so uh, she let me out, and as I was walking into the building, I prayed, Lord, would you help Dr. Lockwood to diagnose what this problem is so that he can prescribe the proper remedy? Now, Dr. Lockwood is an internal medicine man. He is not an ear doctor. And so, you know, he was working sort of out of his sphere, and so I go in, and, and he does a little testing and this kind of thing and so forth. And uh, so finally he says, I think you have a viral infection in the swelling. So we got those medications, went back to the camp, and uh, I began to take those. And uh, by the next morning, I was about 80% okay. And by that evening, it was all okay. And so I went up to him, and I said, boy, you were spot on in diagnosing that, it's really worked. I'm okay now. And he said, you know, the reason that I was able to diagnose that was because one of the partner physicians in their group practice had had the same problem two years before. And just observing how, you know, what the problem was and seeing the same symptoms in me, he was able to correctly diagnose what the situation was. Now, what the point of that is this. Remember that as I walked into the building, I prayed, Lord, would you help Dr. Lockwood to correctly diagnose my problem? When did God begin to answer that prayer? Two years before, see, when a doctor, a fellow doctor in the practice had the same situation 
And so God used that event of two years before to resolve my dilemma today. God often works this way. He, God is not caught by surprise. God, when you, you are faced with a dilemma, God doesn't say, well, let's see, let's turn to page 617 in my heavenly book, you know, and see what the solution is. God has already resolved that. As it says here in our text, Jesus knew what he was going to do. And when God allowed that viral infection to close up my eustachian tube, God knew exactly what he was going to do. But he didn't work in nature. He worked through his providence. This is the way that God will resolve issues in our lives. And let me tell you, the providential working of God is just as much the working of God as it is the performing of a miracle. And I'm just amazed from time to time uh, being attuned to the fact that God is in control of all of our situations, all of our circumstances, all of the activities in this universe. I just kind of sit back and I marvel at God's providential work. I'm disappointed in I'm anxious and I say, what are we going to do? And I do all of these things, but I don't turn to the Lord. Well, I have good news for you. There's one who was faced with a tremendous test in the past few days. Disciples and this tremendous storm that came up. And the disciples were terrified. And remember that some of these men were fishermen. They were used to being out on the Sea of Galilee. And they must have been used to being in rough weather. But, but this was a storm like they had never seen before. And, and they're terrified. But Jesus is in the stern of the boat fast asleep. And they go and they wake him and they say, Lord, don't you know we're about to perish? And you know how Jesus got up and he rebuked the storm and there was this calm. But what I want you to see here is this. While the disciples were terrified and in a sense they were faced with the next time that you find yourself in one of these what are we going to do dilemmas, just remember Jesus was in a dilemma and he passed the test and he did that on your behalf as your representative and substitute. We all know the difference between a teacher who not only teaches, but assigns grades, and a tutor who simply tries to help a student uh, get the material, grasp the material. And I'd like for you to think of God not as your teacher, but as your tutor. God is not assigning you a grade. He has already done that 2,000 years ago. All of us stood before God with an F and Jesus died, Jesus died to take the consequences of our failing grace, our moral failure, not our academic failure. But Jesus also lived that perfect life. He lived a morally perfect life. Not only did he obey, but he perfectly trusted. And he did it for you and for me. So God is not assigning us grace. God is, as it were, through his Holy Spirit, is our tutor. He wants to help us to grow. And just as the tutor comes alongside a student who is having difficulty in a particular course and, and gives individual attention, so the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you and gives you individual attention and will help you grow. But remember, while he's helping you grow, he is not assigning you to be. Father, we, <coughs> all of us, often fail the test of faith. We often get anxious and frustrated. 
and wonder what are we going to do. And we thank you, Father, that first of all, you do not judge us. You do not assign us a failing grade, though we deserve that failing grade, but you do not assign it to us, but rather you credit us with the perfect faith of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we thank you, Father, <clears throat> that you do not <clears throat> you do not leave us there. But you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us to grow. And I pray, Father, that for each of us, as we come to these places in life where we ask, what are we going to do? That our first instinct will not be to resolve it in our own human possibilities, but to look to you and ask for your guidance and for your help. And we pray this in Jesus' name.